I V M. Hello and welcome to States of Anarchy. My name is Hamsini Hariharan. Every week on the podcast, we discuss important questions in global affairs and foreign policy, all in the hope of making a little more sense of the world around us. This week is our special question and answer episode, where we answer listener questions from you. Exactly a month ago, the Israeli state and the Palestinian militant group Hamas agreed to a ceasefire, which ended one of the worst rounds of fighting between the two since 2014. In the 11 days of fighting, Hamas and other groups fired more than 4,300 rockets into Israel, while Israel responded with airstrikes of its own to take down buildings in Gaza. 12 Israelis and 232 Palestinians were killed, and many more were injured as a result of the fighting. Now, Israel and Hamas have been engaged in a cycle of violence for a long time, and have even gone to war with each other. But while the violence is a constant feature, a lot has changed about the conflict and its context over the years. In today's episode, we answer a question about how the most recent Israel-Palestine clashes differ from the previous ones. And what that means for the conflict as a whole. So Asmi asks, "What's the difference between these present clashes between Israel and Palestine and the ones that happened in 2014 and 2009?" Thank you for your question, Asmi. At first glance, this round of Israel-Hamas fighting seemed very similar to previous clashes, like in 2009 and 2014. Thousands of rockets were fired. There was heavy infrastructure damage in Gaza. Most of the casualties were on the Palestinian side. The United States backed Israel. There was mediation, and a ceasefire was agreed on. Both sides claimed victory, but ultimately nothing changed, and the ceasefire was broken in less than a month. But there are major differences this time, both in terms of how the fighting took place and under what circumstances. Both sides improved their technological capabilities this time around. Hamas used its newly acquired A120 rocket launchers, which have an improved range of up to 120 kilometers. Israel also invested heavily in its technological capabilities since the last conflict, and now it has better surveillance and tunnel detection capabilities. During this period, Israel has also invested heavily in the Iron Dome, its air defense system. To the point that it can track multiple rockets at once, making the usual Hamas strategy of overburdening the system less effective. An assessment of the conflict by the U.S.-based Washington Institute for Near East Policy noted that both sides also displayed a change in military tactics. Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad (PIJ) used a variety of approaches, including suicide drones to take down Israeli targets. Meanwhile, Israel appeared more calculated in its response. It targeted the homes of senior militant commanders and rocket specialists, and multi-story buildings, which the Hamas was reportedly using for intelligence, producing weapons, and command and control operations. Now, as much as these developments have increased the stakes of the conflict, they've also prevented the fighting from escalating to the point of a full-scale war, like in 2009 and 2014. Many analysts believe that the recent fighting hasn't yet escalated into a war because there have been no on-foot incursions into Gaza by Israel's armed forces, which would have certainly caused more deaths. There have also been significant changes in power 
in both the Israeli government and Hamas. The government, led by Israel's longest-serving prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has now been replaced by a multi-party coalition led by Naftali Bennett, a far-right politician who vocally supports the annexation of the West Bank. Meanwhile, the radical Hamas group has also emerged as a much stronger force compared to its political rival Fatah, the party of the current Palestinian president Mahmoud Abbas. Yossi Meckelberg, a research fellow at the Chatham House, argued that this newfound legitimacy has allowed Hamas to ferociously attack densely populated areas inside Israel, something which was looked down upon by the Palestinian Authority. These are the changes which have dominated media coverage of the conflict over the past couple of months. But this time around, how ordinary Israelis and Palestinians are thinking about and engaging with the conflict has also changed significantly. In the recent weeks, there have been reports of unprecedented communal violence in a number of Israeli cities between Arab citizens who protested against Israel's actions and far-right Jewish settlers. This unrest is particularly disturbing because it threatens to undo the integration of Israel's Arab citizens, who count for about 20% of the population. At the same time, Palestinians living under Israeli military rule in West Bank, those in Gaza, and those living in Israel are beginning to find common ground and a shared sense of purpose as they confront Israel's structural discrimination against Arab citizens. In an article for the Washington Post, the academic Dana El-Kurd pointed out that younger generations of Palestinians are leading most of these protests and that there is a chance that their sustained mobilization could lead to the formation of a new power center for Palestinians. It's also important to note that the movement is now finding increasing support in the West and notably within Joe Biden-led the US administration. Since the current clash began, three different Democrat representatives from the US Congress have called Israel an apartheid state in House hearings and other public forums, indicating that there is sort of a shift of opinion and increasing sympathy for the Palestinian cause. There's an expectation now that the US and other Western powers will take a much harder stance with Israel due to the political climate in their own nations. But still, how the conflict will play out in the time to come is anyone's guess. So far, the newly elected coalition government, led by Naftali Bennett, hasn't shown any signs of restraint in incendiary displays of nationalism, despite international pressure. Only two days after coming to power, it officially allowed ultra-nationalist demonstrators to march through Arab neighborhoods of Jerusalem in a show of strength. This led to Hamas sending incendiary balloons on June 16th into Israel, which caused 20 ground fires in fields near the borders. Israel isn't really one to back off, and so it responded with airstrikes on Gaza City. Even if international pressure proves to be effective later on, some people are afraid that Israel's new government will convince the US administration to be lenient on it by supporting the resumption of the US-Iran nuclear deal. And that brings us to the end of this super short Q&A episode. I wrote this episode along with Kartikeya Reddy. If you want to listen to an in-depth dive into the current round of conflict between Israel and Palestine, I highly recommend listening to episode 83 of States of Anarchy, where I talk to Mayuri Mukherjee, who's based in Jerusalem. If you have any questions about international relations, then you can ask me and I will feature them every fortnight on the podcast. 
You can email me at ibmstatesofanarchy at gmail.com. You can also send me a DM on Instagram at statesofanarchy or on Twitter at humsneyh. Also, follow our Instagram page for quizzes, fun posts, news roundups, and so much more. If you want to support States of Anarchy, then recommend us to at least one friend. You can also leave us a rating on iTunes. You can listen to States of Anarchy on whatever podcast app you use. We'll be back next Tuesday.